the bed of the high seas, or to be precise, the bed of the sea beyond the limit of the continental shelves of states, which may coincide with 200 miles, but may also be a little more inward, outward, uh, through the expansion beyond 200 miles of the continental shelves, are the international seabed area, namely an, another zone where there is no privileged uh, state in which the mineral resources are proclaimed to be, which are proclaimed to be the common heritage of mankind together with the mineral resources they contain. And this area is under a special regime provided for in part 11 plus annexes 3 and 4 as amended by the 1994 implementation agreement we have mentioned before. So for all purposes that have to do with the exploitation of the mineral resources that constitute the common heritage of mankind, the bed of the high seas has a special nature, is under the administration of the International Seabed Authority and um, there is certainly no freedom of mining there. However, for other purposes, it remains the bed of the seabed, of the high seas, for instance, for the purpose of laying cables and uh, pipelines. So the high seas has changed. And on top of that, the high seas seen from the point of view of the 21st century are not as infinite, as huge as they appeared in the past. And even their fishing resources are not as inexhaustible as they were seen by Grotius, but even as they looked a few decades ago. Now, fishermen who have been kicked out of the economic zones of other states where they used to fish, claiming it was high seas, go to the real high seas, and there are too many of them. And the resources, the fishing resources of the high seas are dwindling. And concerns about the health of the oceans in general and of high seas in, in particular are uh, being uh, felt uh, as very urgent all around the world. So a lot of discussions that are taking place now have to do with the high seas. Perhaps because, certainly because there are problems of governance and in particular of assuring a balance between the exploitation of resources and the preservation of the environment exist but also because in the common, in the present situation of the world and of the law of the sea in particular, uh, states are too proud of having conquered sovereignty or sovereign rights on the economic zone and on the continental shelf to allow for discussion at an international level of what they do within these zones. They feel this is beyond international concern, even though 
of course, activities within 200 miles and those beyond 200 miles have an impact to each other. So this is one of the unresolved problems of today's international law, namely the fact that all efforts for inventing new regimes, new forms of cooperation concentrate on the high seas and that the areas under national jurisdiction remain a kind of untouchable area for international concern. This politically and historically is very explainable, but in terms of the health of the oceans may raise some doubts. So apart from the zonal approach, there are certain questions which cannot be dealt with only within a zone. And sometimes uh, the, the Convention has to make choices, as anybody who wants to speak about the law of the sea has to make choices. For instance, you might, it might be interesting to put in one part everything that concerns fishing and fisheries. However, the Convention made another choice. It speaks of fishing in the economic zone, in the chapter of the economic zone. It speaks on fishing in the high seas, in the chapter on the high seas. The same applies to cables. You could have a chapter on cables, but in fact you have articles on cables in the territorial sea, in the archipelagic zone, in the continental shelf and in the high seas. Uh, on other subjects, the Convention chose to put them all together without following the zonal approach. And this is in particular the question of the protection of the marine environment, which is indeed one of the important new things of the Convention. The whole world is covered by two-thirds by water, by seawater, oceans and seas. And all these oceans and seas are interconnected. So it is easy to understand that any trouble to the environment in one of these, in, in whatever part of the oceans and seas of the world uh, happens, uh, has consequences that go very far beyond the place where the troubling thing happened. So a basic idea that all parts of the sea are interconnected that the marine environment is one and that there is a need to protect the marine environment was present at the Law of the Sea uh, conference and produced part 11 of the convention, which is entitled to the protection and preservation of the marine environment. It is uh, very important to underscore, as was very well understood in the so-called Brundtland report that prepared the Rio conference on the environment of 92, that the rules set out in part 12 of the convention are, were then and probably still are the most important treaty 
on the environment. It is the most important for two reasons. First of all, because it is a treaty, namely a set of binding obligations, which many environmental texts are not. Now, there are also important treaties. Certainly in 1982, there were much less than now. Second, because this treaty, as part of the Convention, is binding for more than 160 states. It contains basically a set of very general rules that may be seem even too general, like the first one, states have the obligation to protect and preserve the marine environment. You could say this is rhetoric, it's not a real obligation, but it's part of a treaty that binds 160 states. On top of that, as we will see later perhaps, uh, is part of a treaty that has an efficient mechanism for settling a dispute. If could say in rough terms, you can sue another state on the basis of this little line of Article 192. So this is a very serious treaty on the environment and a very advanced one considering that it was drafted uh, more than 30 years ago. It contains certain ideas that now are commonplace, like the precautionary approach, like the um, environmental impact studies that now you find everywhere, but in 1982 they were nowhere. So this is a big innovation. On top of that, and this is the part that is more expanded in part 12, there is a kind of allotment of functions as far as the protection of the environment is concerned. This is divided in two basic chapters, one about lawmaking and one about law enforcement. Uh, both of these parts concern about lawmaking, let's uh, take lawmaking first, who can make rules, which state can make rules for which kind of pollution, where. These are the variants. So the kinds of pollution that are considered are pollution from land-based sources. This, for instance, industrial discharges from cities or sewage from cities. This is the biggest source of pollution that exists in the world. Unfortunately, it was not too much uh, worked upon in the Law of the Sea Convention, perhaps because there was a feeling that it was very linked with state sovereignty, but later it was, has been recognized that this is the most important thing that has to be tackled with. Then we have pollution from activities on the seabed, like oil drilling, things like Deepwater Horizon, had they happened beyond uh, the American waters, uh, would have been exactly what we are talking about. Then we have pollution from dumping of waste at sea, pollution from vessels, which is the most developed part, namely the pollution that vessels produced in their normal operation, while pollution by dumping is you take a vessel and you drop voluntarily waste at sea. And then 
uh, we have also pollution from the air. And basically, there is an a lot except a division of competence between what can the coastal state do, what can the flag state do, and in the case of dumping, what can the uh, state where the uh, sewage or, or the waste are put on the vessel to be later discharged at sea. All these provisions, which are quite detailed, I'm just going across the surface of the provisions, do not contain what you could call substantive rules. They do not say, for instance, what substances you can dump at sea, how many milliliters of oil you can discharge, and so on. All this is left to specific conventions. So in this, from this viewpoint, the Law of the Sea Convention, in particular it's part 12, functions as a framework convention linking the general rules to the specific rules that are set out in different conventions. In particular, the London Dumping Convention of 72 the so-called Marpole Convention about pollution from vessels from 73 and updated in 78 and other conventions which may be general like the, the two I mentioned or regional. There are many that were developed through the efforts of UNEP in regional frameworks. So the Convention functions as a huge framework and still has also some very general rules to put forward. Certain of the provisions of the Convention can even have impacts on domestic system. For instance, Article 230, which provides that for certain violations of um, environmental prohibitions uh, for pollution from vessels, only monetary penalties can be imposed, can have an impact on domestic criminal law in case they provide for imprisonment. They imply an obligation to change these domestic legal rules. The provisions of the of part 12, even the general provisions, as I mentioned, can be invoked in court, even in international, um, in international disputes. And indeed, this has happened. For instance, and in particular in the Mox case, this was a case between Ireland and the United Kingdom about the establishment on the United Kingdom shore of the Irish Channel of a plant for treatment of nuclear residues, Ireland invoked before an arbitration tribunal and indirectly before the Law of the Sea Tribunal 
the provision, the very general provisions of Part 12, including the one about prior notification of activities uh, that may be dangerous for the marine environment. So these are provisions of a great importance, inspired by the uh, aim of protecting a common value. Of course, also, the regime to which I made a few mentioned, uh, mentions before of the international seabed area is inspired by a kind of common interest which was labeled as the common heritage of mankind. It is difficult to go into detail on this regime. It would take a full course, but basically the idea is that the mineral resources of the seabed beyond the limits of national jurisdiction, namely beyond the external limits of the continental shelves, because we are talking of seabed, must be exploited through an internationally agreed regime administered by an international entity. The international entity has been established. This is the International Seabed Authority, whose seat is in Kingston, Jamaica, and to which belong as members automatically all states that are parties to the Law of the Sea Convention. It has complex organization that includes a council, a legal and technical commission, a finance commission. And the regime is based on very complicated rules that try to overcome the contradiction between the fact that only few states has the technological and financial ability to explore for the time being and exploit probably in the future the, resource, the resources of the deep seabed, but that the benefits have to be for all states. And the compromise that has been found is the so-called parallel system to which states that have the means can obtain contracts for the exploration and in the future the exploitation of certain areas of the seabed they have prospected, so on which they know that there is a suitable quantity of nodules, but they have to also to provide the authority with an equivalent mining site already explored for exploitation by the authority or by developing states uh, on the contract of the authority. Uh, what is this regime has been set out in Part 11, corrected in the 94 agreement and has been somehow sleeping for about 10 or 12 years. Very lately it has seen certain interesting developments. Uh, first of all, not only the nodules seem to be important. Uh, other substances, minerals on the seabed, have attracted the attention of the authority and of state. These are in particular polymetallic sulfides and ferromanganese crusts. 
1912 to the two first contracts for the exploitation or the exploration, sorry, of sulfides have been concluded by the authority with the Chinese and with the Russian contractor. So this is the beginning of a new uh, kind of um, minerals to be exploited. Second, for the first time, again in, no, this is, sorry, in 1911, 1911, the first two contracts for exploitation on the authority side of the parallel system, namely for developing countries, have been concluded, respectively with Nauru and with Tonga. Uh, on some aspects of these possible contracts, an, an opinion, an advisory opinion, has been request, had been requested by the Council of the Authority to the seabed chamber of the Law of the Sea Tribunal. This concerns the responsibilities and obligations of the state sponsoring entities wishing to um, do exploration and exploitation activities. Of course, these problems of responsibility and especially liabilities was particularly sensitive in case of poor um, developing countries wishing to sponsor such activities. The, the advisory opinion was handed out by the Chamber on 1st February uh, 2011 and I had the honour to chair the Chamber on uh, that particular um, episode. Well, having seen these examples of an of an approach in which the priority is given to interests that are not of a particular state, but of the international community as a whole, I think we can consider our brief uh, tour de table examination of the basic elements of the convention as concluded, and we have seen that the zonal approach is prevalent, but there are certain matters like um, the protection of the environment where the zonal approach is not the best one and it's better to look at them as a whole. The same applies to scientific research. Even though if you look at the chapter entitled in general to scientific research, you will see that the articles then distinguish between scientific research in the territorial sea, on the continental shelf and the economic zone, and on the high seas. So the zonal approach sometimes is back, even on subjects where it seemed to be out of the picture. Having seen all this, it seems to me interesting to stop a minute and consider what kind of world is the world that is envisaged by the Law of the Sea Convention. Of course, this is a vision that is linked to the time when the Convention was adopted, namely 30 years ago. But I think it is a vision that is very forward-looking and very important also for the future. Uh, in a very synthetic way, we can say that the 
world seen from the viewpoint of the law of the sea convention is first a highly institutionalized world, second is a world that is judicially guaranteed, and third is a world where not only the interests of states but also the interests of individuals is relevant and important. I will say a few things on each of these points. First of all, the world the Convention envisages is a world where international institutions have an important role to play. Is not anymore the uh, Westphalian or Grotian uh, world of in which only states are protagonists of international law and international relationship. Here the work of international institutions or organizations is recognized as important. And it is recognized as important in two ways. First of all, tasks are given to existing international organizations and um, the establishment of new international organizations is mentioned, approved, encouraged. Second, some new international institutions are directly established by the Convention. So, for instance, the, especially the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, is very often mentioned in the Convention as the competent international organization, and certain uh, elements of the Convention depend on work to be done by the IMO. For instance, the, the uh, sea lanes through archipelagic waters, a new thing invented by the Convention, established by the Convention, uh, cannot happen. It is, of course, something that the archipelagic uh, state has to do, but it cannot do it unless it has passed through the IMO. And similarly, certain uh, routes through uh, territorial seas or uh, straits have to go through the discussion and approval of the IMO to be opposable to other states when the coastal state adopts them. Very similar to what happens for the uh, extension of the continental shelf beyond 200 miles, which is not opposable to other states unless it corresponds, is consistent with the report and views of an institution, the Commission for the new institution in this case, of the uh, continent of the continental shelf limits. And then in the fisheries field, it is very clear that the Convention puts a lot of trust in the work not only of FAO, which is an international universal organization specialized in the field, but also in regional conventions and arrangements for the development uh, of 
of fisheries and the protection of fisheries in certain regions or of certain fisheries. Having said so, we can now look briefly at the institutions which are have been established because of the need to comply with provisions of the Convention. First of all, the one we have already mentioned, the International Seabed Authority. This is an organization of which all states, parties to the Convention, are automatically members. They all see, see, have a seat in the assembly of this organization and they can participate in electing a 36-member um, uh, council which has very important powers. It's not only an executive body, it's also a decision-making body. This, um, and this the composition and functioning of the council was one of the things that was amended during uh, with the 1994 uh, implementation agreement. Basically, this body takes decisions that can be stopped if certain chambers that are part of, of it by a majority decide against it. So the interest of the consumers, of the land-based producers and of the investors, apart from that of the uh, smallest uh, an island on the developed state cannot be uh, tramped upon. They have a kind of veto power. This is a new thing as compared to the original convention. Th this authority has been meeting regularly in Kingston, sometimes with difficulties in raising the quorum, in the and it has developed regulations for the exploitation of nodules, for the exploitation of sulfides, and probably this year, 2012, will adopt a third set of regulations on the exploitation or exploration of uh, ferromanganese crusts. In the future, it has given a lot of attention to the environmental aspects of all these matters. In the future, it is likely to develop regulations moving from the exploration to the exploitation of these resources and probably it will have to take into account certain suggestions and observations made in the advisory opinion of the seabed chamber. The second institution set up by the convention is, I have already mentioned it, the Commission for the limits of the continental shelf. This is a, body, a restricted body, only 21 members. The members are not states, they are persons, experts in their personal capacity. They are experts in geology and other scientific fields. They are not lawyers, even though, and this is part of the difficulty of their task, they have to, to work with legal texts. They have to assess whether certain scientific data, sometimes uh, produced with their assistance, are in conformity 
with Article 76 of the Convention, which is a legal text that, however, uses terms that come from science, sometimes in the scientific sense, some other times in a special sense that only lawyers with the help of geologists can determine. This is the difficulty which has been also, which has also come to the fore in the case decided by the Law of the Sea Tribunal on 15 March 2012 uh, in the delimitation case between Bangladesh and Myanmar. Here for the first time a judge has decided to delimit the continental shelf beyond 200 miles, namely to trace a lateral boundary between the uh, continental shelves of Bangladesh and Myanmar beyond 200 miles, and the problem of the relationship between such operation and the work of the Commission has emerged and the, the tribunal has had to look closely at the task of the Continental Shelf Limits Commission and has said also something quite important on the interpretation of Article 76, claiming that such interpretation in most aspects belong to lawyers and to judges and not to technicians. But of course this has to be looked in front of the much more nuanced text of the decision. Another body established by the Convention, also made up of persons not of states, is the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. This is a judicial body composed of 21 members, of course, of 21 different nationalities, which has an important role, we'll see some, say something uh, in a few minutes, in settling disputes arising in matters of interpretation and application of the Law of the Sea Convention. This tribunal has been established quite soon after entry into force of the Convention, namely in 1996, and has had up to now on its role 19 cases. In some years it has had very few cases. This was not the case at the very beginning and it's not the case now. Now presently it has two cases on its uh, list and one was just uh, finished, uh, uh, the delimitation case between Bangladesh and Myanmar. Uh, it is clearly a body that could work more but still is doing some work and some useful work. In particular the fact that a delimitation case was submitted to it even though 15 years after its establishment or 14 years after its establishment is a sign that also on the most sensitive uh, issue of the law of the sea the tribunal has something to say which may must be seen in coordination not in competition but in coordination with the uh, already con substantial jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice and of arbitration tribunals. 
And then we have a fourth body, less structured, but no less important, which is mentioned briefly in the convention. This is the meeting of the state parties to the convention. This is a body that meets regularly once a year, sometimes twice, and who has, which has limited but important tasks. Main tasks are to elect the members of the Law of the Sea Tribunal and of the Commission for the um, limits of the continental share. On top of that, it has the power and the right to adopt the budget of the tribunal. There are a lot of discussions as to whether it should expand its competence into a more general body for discussing whatever law of the sea issue is on the table, or at least whatever law of the sea issues concerning the convention is on the table. Uh, this, however, according to other views, would duplicate the effort already made by the General Assembly of the United Nations, which every year discusses an item on the law of the sea and an item of fisheries adopt regularly resolutions on this subject and apart from that has established an open-ended consultative process in which every year in a non-diplomatic, more technical than, uh, than legal framework, important issues of the law of the sea are discussed. And of course the advantage of discussing the matters in the law, in the UN Assembly uh, framework is that every state member of the United Nations participates where, while in a meeting of the state parties, only state parties would participate and non-state parties would have the second rank level of observers. Of course, for certain states this is an advantage, for others is a disadvantage. Still, this is a discussion that goes on and it seems that states are content to keep the discussion going in the meeting of the state parties and continue discussing more broadly in the UN General Assembly. This perhaps is enough as far as the institutionalized world, the Law of the Sea Convention envisages. Then I say that the Law of the Sea Convention envisages a world that is judicially guaranteed. Uh, with this, I want to underscore that the law of the Sea Convention, if compared with other, also very important, codification conventions adopted in the framework of the United Nations, is exceptional as far as the settlement of disputes is concerned. When you take the most famous codification conventions adopted by the UN, say the Geneva Convention on Diplomatic Relations, the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, and so on and so forth, when you get towards the end of the convention, and there is always a chapter on the settlement of disputes, uh, normally this chapter doesn't add much to what would otherwise be applicable even without these rules. States 
should settle peacefully according to the means provided by the UN Charter to uh, the disputes um, that might arise in the application and interpretation of the Convention. They, will, they shall submit, but by agreement, uh, these disputes to an arbitration or to the International Court of Justice. There is no rule that provides for what we call compulsory jurisdiction of a court, of a tribunal. Namely, a rule that would say that a state parties, party can put in motion a judicial or arbitral mechanism for settling the dispute without obtaining beforehand the agreement of the other party. Well, the basic principle adopted by the law of the Sea Convention is exactly this, is compulsory jurisdiction. As a rule, with exception, as a rule, a state, just because it has ratified the Convention, has the right to, we could say, the borrowing from domestic procedure, has the right to sue another party before a judge or an arbitration, has a right to set in motion a judicial proceeding for settling a dispute concerning the interpretation or application of the Convention unilaterally, without asking permission or agreement from the counterparty. And the other party is submitted to the jurisdiction of this um, court or tribunal just because it is a state that has ratified or has accepted the Convention. This is the fundamental new thing that the Convention brings about. The principle of submission to compulsory adjudication of the, inter the disputes concerning interpretation and application. It has to be said immediately that this mechanism, which is revolutionary, as far, not a, as far as the principle of international law are concerned, but a, as far as the practice of existing convention, has also some attenuations in the rules. There are certain categories of disputes that cannot be submitted unilaterally to adjudication, especially those concerning the exercise of sovereign rights in the economic zone. There are certain categories of disputes that can be excluded from jurisdiction, from compulsory jurisdiction through a special declaration of one state parties. And these include in particular delimitation disputes, but also military uh, questions of military uses of the sea. But still the, the principle is compulsory jurisdiction, and then there are exceptions and limitations. On top of this, the Convention is flexible as far which adjudication bo uh, body will exercise compulsory jurisdiction. States can make special declarations saying that they prefer for the settlement of disputes under compulsory jurisdiction clauses either or not only either, but also together, one or more of the Law of the Sea Tribunal, 
the International Court of Justice and an International Arbitration Tribunal, which can be of two kinds, general and specialized. If a dispute arises involving two states that have made the same declaration of preference, there you have the competent body. If they have made two different, they have preferred two different body, there is a rule which provides that they are deemed to have chosen arbitration of a general kind. And the same deemed rule applies to the case in which a state doesn't express a preference, doesn't make the declaration. In this case, it is deemed to have chosen arbitration. So, in fact, the mechanism makes it far more likely that the dispute will be on the compulsory jurisdiction of an arbitration tribunal than of the Law of the Sea Tribunal or of the International Court of Justice. Uh, still, and the practice of the declarations that have been made since 1996 up to today confirms this as about more than two-thirds of the states, parties to the Convention, have made no declaration. So they are deemed to have accepted the Law of the Sea Tribunal. And indeed, the practice of disputes arising since the entry into force of the Convention up to now and dealing with the interpretation of the Convention shows that they practically always arise in cases in which an arbitration tribunal would be competent, either because neither of the parties have made a choice or because one party has made a choice and the other has made no choice. And so most cases start by being brought to, a, to an arbitration tribunal. In some cases they stay with the arbitration tribunal and the arbitration tribunal brings the case to its conclusion. In some other cases, the states, once they understand that they are submitted to compulsory jurisdiction and that this jurisdiction will be exercised by an arbitration tribunal, have been a bit afraid of the expenses and effort necessary to set up an arbitration tribunal and have, through various legal mechanisms, which I will not enter today, decided together to transfer their case from the yet-to-be-established arbitration tribunal to the Law of the Sea Tribunal or to a chamber composed within the Law of the Sea Tribunal. So the Law of the Sea Tribunal has been called to decide on cases in which originally it had no jurisdiction because the jurisdiction belonged to an arbitration tribunal. On top of that, there are certain situations in which the Law of the Sea Tribunal enjoys exclusive jurisdiction. First of all, all cases dealing with the international seabed areas and the activities therein. These belong to the exclusive competence of the seabed dispute chamber, which you could consider as a tribunal within the Law of the Sea Tribunal, composed of 11 of its 21 members with a different president, 
and um, working as a separate entity. And on top of that, there is a special procedure before the Law of the Sea Tribunal, in practically in a situation of exclusive jurisdiction. This is the procedure for the prompt release of vessels and crews. This is a procedure based on the fact that vessels may be uh, seized and detained by a coastal state for a variety of reasons and sometimes kept for a long time idle, pending, sometimes confused legal procedure with great expense. The idea is that when there is an obligation to release these vessels on the the payment of an appropriate bond or other financial guarantee, these vessels should be released. But if they are not released, you can request the tribunal to order their prompt release. And this has happened already, is perhaps the most frequent case of activity of the Law of the Sea Tribunal. It's happened seven or eight times involving vessels and nationalities from the African region, to the Caribbean region, to Australia, to Russia, so all over the world. And this has been a relatively successful, quick procedure that has put before the tribunal not only the usual lawyers that deal with international cases, but very often lawyers dealing with maritime law in the sense of domestic maritime law. Another important aspect worth mentioning is that while formally prompt release cases are international cases between the flag state and the coastal detaining state, in practice it is admitted also literally by the convention that these uh, cases can be brought to the law of the sea tribunal not only by the flag state but also on behalf of the flag state. And on behalf means by the private persons, for instance, the ship owner, interested in the vessel. Of course, on behalf doesn't mean that any ship owner can bring a case. It means that it has to have a mandate. It has, this action has to be accepted by the flag state. So the flag state maintains control of these cases, but it can choose not to intervene directly and just permit the interested parties to uh, put forward these cases. In about half of the cases, or a little more than a half of the cases that in fact have been brought, this uh, on behalf technique has been followed. In a few other cases, the states have preferred to bring the case direct. We know that in some cases, the private interested parties had requested for permission and not obtained it, and the flag state has neither decided to uh, proceed. And of course, political reasons may be important uh, from this viewpoint. So we have seen how it is justified to say that the world of the Law of the Sea Convention is a world 
where the judge and the arbitrator have an important say. It's not just legal rules in a void, it's legal rules that at least in most cases can be, as, uh, whose application can be uh, checked by a judge or an arbitrator. One particular provision, Article 76, is also under the jurisdiction of an administrative technical body, and we have seen about the tasks of the, the limitation, the, the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. A few words on the other point I made before. This is a convention that, of course, deals with relationship between states, deals with the sea, but doesn't forget completely the individual. The very existence of the procedure, for instance, on prompt release of vessels and crews touches um, on the freedom of the individuals. This provision may, this procedure may be used to free from detention individuals arbitrarily detained. So there is, and even the Law of the Sea Tribunal has almost said it, saying that that these provisions have a human rights content, even though they didn't use exactly these words. And, of course, there are also other uh, provisions like those about distress that are connected with the well-being of individuals and what we now could call human rights in a broad sense. And it is interesting to note that also human rights bodies like the, United, the European um, Court for Human Rights have sometimes referred to the Law of the Sea Convention and applied the Law of the Sea Convention in deciding cases concerning the protection of human rights. Just one case I would like to mention uh, where you see the intermingling between the consideration of law of the sea and of um, human rights, there was a case called Mangugas case before the European Convention, uh, sorry, Court of Human Rights, concerning the detention by the Spanish authorities of the captain, a Greek captain of the famous prestige vessel which had produced immense pollution in the waters of Galicia in Spain. This person had been detained, then uh, a huge fine had been imposed to him, and this person claimed that this huge fine was far beyond its mean and against its human rights under the Convention. And in assessing whether the fine was reasonable in the circumstances, the European Court said, well, we have a jurisprudence of the Law of the Sea Tribunal about when a bond for uh, releasing a vessel or crew is reasonable. We can look at this for taking our decision, even though we are not bound. It's interesting to look at it. I think this is a very interesting example of how in the exist in the today's world where sometimes observers lament that there are too many judges that they say what they want and they end up fragmenting international law. In fact, more often 
judges look with interest to what their colleagues do and take advantage of the good things and sometimes forget the bad things. Thank you.